So as I promised, we want to do a quick missions update. July is actually a pretty exciting time in Grace Church Missions. We have family conferences going on across the world. And I wanted to give Mark, Mark is just back from Africa, right? Was that the latest one? And I, I thought I'd give Mark a chance uh, just to give a kind of an update on those. And then we have another one uh, coming up uh, in Europe that we're going to actually in Poland. So go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Brad. Well, first of all, you guys are in for a treat. Hear Brad speak on the life of David Brainerd. So uh, don't want to take too much of his time. But I do want to give you a, a brief update from the field, maybe a little bit of context. Every two years, Grace Church has been committed to investing in our missionary families around the world. And we usually bring them all together uh, to some location in the world, if not Grace Church, somewhere in Europe, uh, typically that's uh, accessible. And uh, we bring our elders together. You probably have heard the term echo uh, elders at some point. There's a lot of acronyms around here, right? It's kind of alphabet soup. So let me help you a little bit. There's Grace Ministries International. That's the missionary sending agency of Grace Community Church. And that whole effort of sending missionaries out is under the authority of a group of elders that we call the Elders Council Handling Outreach. It's kind of a play on words, right? Echo, looking at the multiplication and advancement of the gospel uh, to the nations. But that group of elders, uh, they're just dear friends. Uh, Brad has served for many, many years, uh, as well as others in the room on that group uh, or team of elders. As we've grown, if you haven't noticed, right, we've been sending out more missionaries over the last few years, and the Lord's opening up more and more doors uh, of opportunity across the globe. And as we've grown, we realize uh, what we need to do is to kind of scale up our shepherding of our missionaries. And so we appointed a few years ago what we call regional shepherds. And these regional shepherds uh, are men who report to the Echo Elders but they're veteran missionaries. A lot of times they've been on the field for 20, 25, even 30 years. They're some of our most experienced uh, missionaries. A lot of times their kids uh, have gone off to university, got married, and they're empty nesters. That means the husband and the wife are available. And more proximate geographically, it means by a car drive or a train ride or even a short plane ride, they can be in the living room of any one of our missionary families in that region, their region that they oversee within two to three, four hours. And so we wanted to provide more intimate care, not just from elders back here, but actually on the field. So as we've grown, we realize you bring all those people together, and it's always a, a wonderful experience. But we thought particularly after the hardships of the last few years, it'd be really great if we broke up by those regions and entrusted those regional shepherds to really um, spend time pressing into a smaller group of families in that region. So we divide the world into five regions. Uh, we've got uh, the um, uh, Asia-Pacific region. We've got the uh, Ibero-America. That's a phrase you and I don't usually use, but it's the common term to capture Latin South America, the Caribbean, uh, Spain, and Portugal, kind of those Spanish, Portuguese, and Caribbean languages. So we break up in that region. We have the Africa region. We have the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North Africa, kind of that Muslim or 1040 window uh, part of the world. Uh, and then um, we also have, what am I leaving out? Um, and Europe, of course, yes. which is ahead of us. Europe and CIS, the former Soviet uh, Union countries. So we have some really remarkable uh, veteran missionaries uh, working as part of the shepherding team with the Echo Elders to provide care for them. Last few years have been tough, right? Uh, with COVID lockdowns, you think it's been bad here. 
you look at some of the restrictions that have been placed in places across Asia, particularly Europe and even Africa. And um, not only that, to not make uh, things more challenging, our missionaries are on the front lines for the battle for the truth, right? They're in contexts where there's state religions or cults or false religions that are so dominant that they really have the greater influence in the government. And so this has proven to be a great occasion for those influences to really bring even more pressure on the church than what you see here. Of course, the other liberalism and progressive agendas that have become global are part of that. Then you take uh, the fact that these are, these are young churches that they're pastoring and planting and trying to train pastors for, and they're all fighting for the truth uh, and trying to mature their congregations in the truth. So you've got all kinds of challenges, right? And then you just have the practical concerns of trying to parent and shepherd uh, your family in the midst of that. So we love our missionaries, don't we? And uh, we thought uh, by doing these regional conferences this year, it gives us a chance to spend more quality time really come alongside them instead of one large group, break them down into smaller groups. And roughly we have uh, 12 to 20 families that come together. And so by spending an entire week with them, with the elders that are assigned to that region, plus the regional shepherds, um, it was just a great time of ministry. Let me tell you what the themes were real quick. So uh, our first regional conference was at the beginning uh, of this last month in India. And so we gathered together with our friends uh, in that setting. And the theme was perseverance in persecution. So they're teaching through it. And then we had roundtable discussions talking about what does persecution or what are the, the opposition to the truth and the gospel that you encounter in your own setting. And so we just cut to the chase. They were sharing what was going on by way of uh, persecution, assaults, challenges in life and ministry. And... Um, it really began to knit the missionaries' hearts together very quickly. And it wasn't just us ministering, but they were able to minister to one another because they were hearing what was going on in each other's lives. And all of a sudden, where they're out fighting a battle and they might feel a little isolated or alone, they realize, oh, yeah, we're part of this greater endeavor. We're not alone. And while we were ministering uh, as elders to them, we actually saw them throughout the week just having follow-up conversations. Boy, what you just went through is something I went through a few years ago. And they were caring for one another. And that was really strengthening uh, the network of support within the region. So that was a joy to see. And and we thought, well, boy, India was great. What's going to happen next? And uh, two weeks ago, we had our Ibero-America conference in Spain. And you know a lot about that ministry there in Spain. But they hosted everybody from Latin and South America, the Caribbean, who joined us. It was really amazing. And the theme that week was faithfulness. Focus on faithfulness and trusting God for the outcomes. You know, a lot of times missionaries, whether it's intended or unintended, feel a lot of pressure. You know, how many converts? How many baptisms? How, how big is your church growing by new members? What's your you know, new training ministry and this and this? And while some of those are clear indications of God's work, a missionary can take on more of the responsibility for the spiritual fruit than what God intends. And we know God is the one who transforms lives. So it was really wonderful time for all of them to be reminded from the scriptures that God is sovereign. It's his providence and his timing that the fruit's going to be born. You just need to be faithful and not lose heart in that. Um, And we saw the same exact dynamic of just mutual encouragement and strengthening. The um, most recent conference, I saw George Crawford in here, and some may be on the S-team. Tim, we were in South Africa 
We brought all of our folks from Africa uh, together, including Madagascar and other locations in, in, in the continent. And um, the theme for that week was do not grow weary in well-doing. So you can kind of see there's a, there's a common theme as far as just the need for encouragement to, to persevere and to be faithful. And it was absolutely a delightful time, and, and the elders just did a great job of ministering again. But we just watched God every day. I could say this. Every day of every conference, we just saw God at work in ways that were far beyond you know, our practical ministry of encouragement and counsel. It was the strengthening of heart, the uh, affirmation of fellowship, and partnering in ministry. So we're really thankful. Uh, so many of you have been praying uh, towards the end that God would care for our missionaries, strengthen them, encourage them. Uh, we have one more to go. And I'm really glad the Armstrongs and our Europe elders are going to join us in Poland. And we know right now is a dynamic time, right? Uh, the Whites are going to come up from Ukraine. Uh, the Alberts will be with us. And, of course, everybody's facing ministry. In addition to all the things I just mentioned, the refugee ministry is impacting the church in, in some really wonderful but challenging ways. So uh, we're going to pray up and make sure we're ready to yep. try to serve our missionaries there, right? Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for giving me a chance hey, thanks, to give Mark. that yeah, update. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. You thank you. All right. Keep praying, folks. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Susan and I were very excited about Poland um, almost, uh, well, it was probably 35 years ago, almost more maybe. Uh, we, were, we were upstairs in uh, uh, meeting with marriage builders at the time, and Bob Provost was our elder. And so... Uh, Bob was had a connection and was starting to kind of transition into missions work and hadn't joined Slavic Gospel yet, but he was organizing uh, a trip to Poland, a short-term trip to Poland. In those days, did everybody remember when the wall came down? It was like 1989. Well, this was 1986, and Susan and I were just married. Uh, Bob had we had a group from uh, Marriage Bullers at the time, now commissioned. Uh, we were all set to go to Poland, but the wall hadn't come down. So Bob had it. So we'd ride in these trunks and we'd come over and sneak over the border and then uh, we'd minister. And, um, and we even had our Polish phrase book. So we were all set to go in 1986. Susan and I had already been married for two years, but needless to say, kind of reasoned one out and said, maybe it's not a good idea to send a team of married couples in the trunks of cars to Poland. Uh, maybe we'll wait. And so, uh, but then Fortunately, when the wall did come down, you know, we were able to go to Ukraine, made several trips to Ukraine, and have uh, been really agonized over what's going on with our brothers and sisters there. It's been terrible, but it's, it was just great ministry there. But it's, it's nice that now we do finally get 35 years later, we get to go to Poland. So, and uh, maybe that Polish phrase book, did, we, did that make the move, Susan? We have that. So, okay, be able to bring that out of the, the closet. So, um, anyway, I'm excited about... Uh, David Brainerd, I, uh, and I think um, Josiah's teaching this morning was a great intro uh, to this about David Brainerd's life. And quite frankly, I think Josiah is a great model of uh, David Brainerd. He kind of follows in the footsteps. I mean, this guy was in the ICU, I, I mean, just how many days ago? And here he is preaching in front of Grace Church. And maybe we could accuse him of some of the same things. He just works so hard despite all the infirmities that he has to deal with. But he's such a tremendous testimony. I get a lot of that feeling. And quite frankly, a lot of our missionaries kind of fall into that. But, but David Brainerd is a uh, is special case. And we're going to um, really, uh, really go try to delve into his life. It's just scratching the surface, really. Um, so we have um, just a few about introductions. We're going to kind of go through his life growing up, his conversion, which is an incredible story in itself. 
how he prepared for ministry, and it wasn't exactly the way he thought it was going to be, but it was the way God had planned for him, uh, his mission to the Indians, and then some some uh, uh, discussion of final days. We're also going to have, we have a very interesting surprise visit uh, from uh, from um, Bill Brandenstein is going to come up. And so one of the things we're going to talk about is that uh, David Brainerd uh, was sort of coming up uh, and, and lived during the time of the Great Awakening. And that was also, and we're going to talk about that and what was, uh, what was going on spiritually with the church at that time. But also what was happening, there was a great awakening on the, church, on the side of worship and hymns and moving from kind of metrical psalms over to kind of more full worship based on the full Bible. And, uh, and, and Bill graciously uh, uh, agreed to come um, and uh, kind of talk about that and lead us in some worship. So that's a special treat for us. We'll probably, uh, yeah, we'll probably get to And then the last thing was we'll take a few lessons away. So, um, you know, I, I can say, you know, people have said, you know, Helen of Troy had the face that launched a, a thousand ships. Well, I think it's safe to say that David Brainerd's life was the life that launched a thousand missionaries. He had that kind of life and that kind of impact. It's interesting that, you know, a lot of us never don't even hear about him because when you actually read his, about his life and all the people that were impacted in him and, and the impact he really had on the church, it's amazing we don't hear more about him. And so I, I took this as an opportunity to really selfishly study his life for myself, and I found it incredibly uplifting, but then maybe share some of that uh, with you. So uh, just to give you kind of an example, you know, just talking about the people who, who were impacted, uh, John Wesley, who was who was kind of a, in that time as well as part of the Great Awakening and one of those uh, genre of preachers, John and Charles, who did a lot of the hymn writing, uh, let every preacher read carefully over the life of David Brainerd. Uh, Henry Martin, who was a missionary to India and Persia, pursuing perusing the life of David Brainerd, his soul was filled with a holy emulation of that extraordinary man. And after deep consideration of fervent prayer, he was at length fixed and a resolution to imitate, imitate his example. So Henry Martin wanted to follow it in his footsteps, you know, after reading his work. Gideon Hawley, he was a missionary disciple of Edwards. I need greatly, need something more than humane or, uh, to support me. I read the Bible and Brainerd's life. It's the only books I brought with me. So when he went to the field, he brought the Bible and Brainerd's life with him. And you could almost say that Brainerd's life is a practical application of the Bible when you read about it. And here's David Brainerd. Uh, you know, he was born in 1718, lived a short life. He was only 29 years when he died, you know, and we'll talk about his hardships. And one of the things that um, really gives us the most about him is he kept a meticulous diary and a journal, a missionary journal. And that's where we're going to be taking a lot of our material uh, for today. And interestingly enough, he was such a humble guy, he did not want this diary or journal to be distributed. He instructed that it be destroyed after his death but uh, Jonathan Edwards, who we'll talk about, convinced him to leave it as a testimony to those that would follow. Um, and uh, if um, really you could say that he is kind of the, um, the, the grandfather of, of modern missions movement. And the, just you see the, the way he went about it and kind of the, the methods they used. Um, you know, and of course, the other thing is about you, you have a picture like that. He was never married. Even though he's a handsome guy, could have been married, but he was married to the Lord, and you'll see that. Um, he, n- he never had a, even an occasion. You know, he, he was the kind of guy that just put away 
kind of all worldly entrapments, you know, and, and really put those from him. Very serious, sober. Um, you know, and, and when we talk about diaries and journals, and this is partly what we talk to missionaries about too, but uh, one of the things that it's very important, we really encourage our missionaries to to communicate, to capture their experiences, because it's, it's a testimony of the Holy Spirit's work. And you see that all through Brainerd's journal. It's not that he didn't have trials and tribulations. He did. But it's showing how the Lord worked through those trials and tribulations with him. Uh, and so uh, you get a, a great insight into his life. And because he never intended to publish them, these are very personal. And you get a real insight into his life. And it's also a roadmap to those who would follow. You know, communications weren't what they are today back then. So these journals and these diaries that he kept were really important. In fact, the, the missions agency that he worked for officially chartered him to keep a mission journal. So he has a diary, but he also has a journal of, of, of his mission work with the Indians. And uh, I was reading a, uh, I was uh, watching a movie, um, was uh, um, Into the Ice, I think it was called. Um, what was it called? Oh, Against the Ice. It's about a, a Norway expedition to Greenland. Has anybody seen that movie? It's not, uh, I think it was a Netflix movie anyway. So Against the Ice. But it was a, it was a missionary, it was an expedition that went to Greenland. The bottom line was Norway was trying to claim Greenland for their own property. They sent an expedition to scout the territory because the U.S. had claimed half the island, saying it was two islands. Greenland was two islands. So they sent an initial expedition uh, to claim the island or, or to figure out if it was one or two, because if it was two, then the U.S. would have half of Greenland now. And so they sent an initial expedition out, um, and they basically discovered that Greenland is one island. But their their charter to the the expeditionary force is your journal must come home even if you don't. And uh, and because the the your the importance of your findings were so much more important than you yourself. And what happened is the initial expedition all died. So they sent another expedition out. They eventually found the journal kind of buried in one of these rock piles. I mean, in the middle of Greenland, if you can believe that. And then it's the whole story about how they got back, got stuck there for two years and came back. But the importance of it was that journal, the findings, was so important uh, that was even transcended your life. And I think for, for Brainerd, the, the journal, that, the impact that his journal has had to follow, show the importance of keeping track of that. And that's why we encourage our missionaries to communicate and track because it's a record of God's testimony and work in their lives as well as a roadmap for others to follow, particularly in areas where, you know, there's a lot of areas where kind of unknown. And the ministry in the Americas was still relatively unknown. There'd only been um, Europeans there for 100 years or so. And so this was all new and they really need to keep a good um, journal uh, and it was also something that Brainer would constantly go back and read his journal and see how God had worked through him. Isn't that also true? When we look back on the record of how God has worked in our lives, we see that testimony. So even though we can't see the way out, we look back on our lives and we say, well, yeah, Lord got, got me through this. He got me through that. So that record of our walk with God is really encouraging to, the, to going forward. And I think that's how Brainerd used it as well. Another important person in this is Jonathan Edwards. Obviously, Jonathan Edwards is a lot better known than David Brainerd, but these two men, and we'll see, work really hand in hand. You know, he was obviously, a lot, a lot of people say he was America's uh, greatest theologian until John MacArthur. And then uh, he entered Yale at 13. Can you believe that? And, and Yale at that point was not the Yale that we know today. That's where seminary got, went, guys went to go to seminary to get trained to be in the pastor. And he had a master's degree by age of 20. 
he was served as senior pastor for 20 years, and then he was just dismissed over a communion issue. Uh, seems kind of interesting. But then he became the president of, of um, Princeton University. Actually, Princeton University was founded because people were reacting to Yale uh, and, and not accepting Brainerd back, and we'll see why and later. Uh, and so he became president of Princeton. Um, has a lot of, uh, of theological uh, treatises and papers that he's published in books. Uh, obviously, one of his famous um, uh, Great Awakening sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, and his, but his most widely published uh, book that he's ever written is the uh, is the biography of David Brainerd. And it's, it's interesting when you talk about it. It's a biography, but really I think it's half biography, half autobiography, because most of what's in the biography is Brainerd's own journal, his own diary. And then, uh, then what D- Edwards does, he adds commentary on top of that. So uh, it's interesting. So he factors very much into this. Um, so Bra- Edwards inter- provided an introduction in the, in, in the biography how uh, it's uh, interesting, kind of, and, and I've really had a great appreciation of Edwards as I'm reading about Brainerd, but just the, the way that Edwards is able to kind of break a, a, a situation down, apply biblical truth, and, and present it in a very interesting way. So his introduction to Brainerd kind of states this, there are two ways of representing and recommending two religion and virtue to the world, the one by doctrine and precept, the other by instance and example, both are abundantly used in the Holy Scripture. And then he goes on to talk about how Christ did this and a whole long uh, paragraph on how Christ represented both of those. Um, so, and then now as he's talking to Brainerd, God also in his providence has want to make use of both these methods to hold forth light to mankind and inducements to their, their duty in all ages. He has from time to time raised up eminent teachers to exhibit and bear testimony to the truth by their doctrine and to oppose the errors, darkness, and wickedness of the world. He has also raised up some eminent persons who have set bright examples of that religion, which is taught and prescribed in the word of God, whose examples have in the course of divine providence been set forth to public view. These have a great tendency to both engage the attention of men to the doctrines and rules taught, and also to confirm and enforce them, especially when those bright examples have been exhibited in the same persons who have been eminent teachers." Such an instance we have in the excellent person whose life is published in the following pages. So this is an introduction. So you have, in, in Edward's world, you have great teachers who teach the word, and they have those who are great examples of putting the word into practice. And in, and in Brainerd, we have an example of someone who's both. But he did point out there's two weaknesses, and we'll get into this a little bit more. By his constitution and natural temper, he was so prone to melancholy and dejection of spirit, he exceeded all melancholy persons that I ever was acquainted for, with. So we, we, said, we, we have a word, depression for melancholy, but, but this is something that Brainerd had and he lived with, and you'll see uh, the impacts of that. Another imperfection in Mr. Brainerd, which may be observed in the following account of his life, was his excessive, he was being excessive in his labors, not taking due care to proportion his fatigues to his strengths, and you'll see that too. Uh, it was estimated Brainerd, uh, in his four-year ministry, traveled 15,000 miles. So I calculate that's traveling more, almost four hours a day somewhere, you know, on average. And so, and these these were not, you know, you know, you're not traveling in air-conditioned buses and planes. Uh, this is on horse. This is hard travel. And with the conditions he had, 
uh, I think a lot of people think that he worked so hard, he worked himself literally to death with, with his conditions. So, and this is an overall timeline. I thought it would just be good to give you kind of a brief overview of, of kind of Islam. We'll, we'll go into this in a little more detail. But he was born in uh, 1718. Um, he was converted on 1739. We'll talk about that. Enters Yale College almost immediately after. Uh, then after being dismissed from his college, what we'll talk about, uh, he received a license to preach. Um, and he, he couldn't become a pastor, but he could be licensed to preach. So he became sort of an itinerant preacher. Um, and then initially he worked with a one band of Indians near Conomique in Massachusetts. Uh, and then he moved to uh, the Delaware River to work with another band of Indians in kind of western Pennsylvania. Uh, and then finally where he receives his greatest success is in New Jersey, Cross Week Sun, uh, which we'll talk about and get his perspectives on. Uh, and then that... That little community there is banded together and moves to Cranberry where they have their own Christian village, essentially. And then he passes away in Edward's home in, in age 29. But as you can see, a relatively short period of time is really, his ministry was only four years long. He was only a Christian eight years. But if you look at the life that he lived in, in eight years uh, of being a Christian, it, it was pretty impactful. And here's a little map. It's kind of hard. This, I, didn't, I was looking for a lot of maps, but um, this one is the best I can come up with. But, but anyway, he, he kind of started out in, in Massachusetts. Uh, Edwards had his church up in North Hamron. Uh, he, he started his initial mystery in Stockbridge, and he was from Haddam, so he initially went into Stockbridge. And then he kind of made a full circle. Um, he started in Stockbridge in near Conomique, which is right up there way up in there, and then went to the Forks of Delaware, which is in western Pennsylvania, uh, ministered to the Indians there, and then where he had his grace to sec was Crotswicksung there, and then they formed a little village in Cranberry. This is New Jersey. And then he ended up back uh, in Northampton up um, with um, Jonathan Edwards and his church and then obviously his home. So that's a little bit, but it's a lot of ground to cover on horseback. I mean, so it's, and he did do that. So growing up, you had parents, Hezekiah and Dorothy. They were both strict Puritans. They lived a strict Puritan life. His father was a legislature and a squire and a businessman. Um, you know, this is a quote from David himself. I was, from my youth, somewhat sober, inclined to melancholy, as, as Edwards had said, uh, than, rather than the contrary extreme. But do not remember anything of conviction of sin worthy of remark till I was, I believe, about seven or eight. Then I became concerned for my soul, and terrified at the thoughts of death, and was driven to the performance of duties, but it appeared a melancholy business which destroyed my eagerness for play. So he didn't play a lot. He kind of gave away. He didn't play um, uh, with the other kids much. So he's a very serious and solemn guy, melancholy. And he was. This sort of began a period of time where he was working towards salvation, but not actually achieving it. And um, and the whole family I, was sort of given to melancholy from what I heard. So, uh, you know, the, the Brainerds weren't the guys that you would sort of invite over for dinner if you wanted to have a nice uh, evening of conversation. It was like, oh, good day to you. Oh, what's so good about it? So it uh, <laughs> uh, but, but so it sort of ran in the family. But then, then, so that was kind of his start on the path to salvation. He was trying to work his way into heaven. And then at a very young age, at nine, his father died. So he lost that influence in his life. So there's, 
you know, it's almost as a series of strikes uh, and trials and tribulations coming into his life. That's, that's the first one. Um, and then, we, so we're tracking his path to salvation here. But sometime in the winter of 1732, I was roused out of carnal security by scarce know what means, but was much excited by the prevailing of a mortal sickness in Haddam. I was frequent, constant, and somewhat fervent in duties and took delight in reading, especially Janeway, Mr. Janeway's token for children. I felt sometimes much melted in duties and took great delight in the performance of them. And I sometimes hoped that I was converted, or at least in good and hopeful way for heaven and happiness, but not knowing what conversion was, as we'll see later. And may I indeed see, almost I was persuaded to be a Christian, but not yet. And, and then the next thing hits, his mother died in 1732 when he was 14. So, and he was, as he says here, I was exceedingly distressed and melancholy at the death of my mother. So strike two on David Brainerd. So then he went to live with his sister, Jerusa. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he left his father's house and he spent four years without God in the world. And But alas, and what he realizes later, all my good frames were but self-righteousness, not founded in a desire for the glory of God. So Brainerd was still searching for his purpose and calling and losing your parents doesn't always help that with that guiding light. Uh, although I'm sure his sister might've been some comfort. Uh, he inherited a farm. Not sure how that happened, but he inherited a farm. And he tried farming for a year. Um, but uh, he, he figured out he wasn't a farmer. You know, Brad Clausen is uh, kind of a, has, has turned farming into missionary work. I guess uh, um, David Brainerd do the same. He said here, uh, I applied myself to study and, and was now engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became very strict and watchful over my thoughts, words, and actions and thought I must be sober indeed because I designed to devote myself to the ministry and imagined I did ded- dedicate myself to the Lord. So here he, he's in ministry now. He's ministering. And, and he feels like, well, I'm, I'm doing enough for the Lord. Uh, and then, then he returned to Haddam. Uh, to study under his former pastor, which is, this is where he grew up. This is a fat pastor of his youth. Um, and I remember he advised me to wholly abandon young company and associate myself with grave elderly people. Sounds like a fun guy. The, uh, which counsel I followed. My manner of life was now exceedingly regular and full of religion, such as it was. For I read my Bible more than twice through in less than a year, spent much time every day in prayer and other secret duties, gave great attention to the word uh, preached and endeavored to my utmost to retain it. In short, I had a very good outside, but my heart was exceedingly sinful. So what we see here is Mr. Brainerd has developed into a great Pharisee. Um, and uh, Fisk, then his trusted discipler, died that same year. So strike three on, uh, on Mr. Brainerd. Uh, after Fisk's death, I proceeded in my learning with my brother. It was still very constant in my religious duties and often wondered at the levity of professors. It was trouble to me, and they were so careless in religious matters. Thus, I proceeded a considerable length on a self-righteous foundation and should have been entirely lost and undone were it not for the mercy of God, not the mere mercy of God prevented. And despite all his efforts, Rainer still did not have a relationship with Christ, a saving relationship, saving knowledge of Christ. Until... Um, and though hundreds of times I, uh, I renounced all pretenses of any worth in my duties, as I thought, even while performing them, and often confessed to God that I deserved nothing for the very best of them, 
on eternal foundation. Yet still I had this secret hope of recommending myself to God by my religious duties. The many disappointments, great distresses, and perplexities I met with put me in the most horrible frame of contesting with the Almighty with an inward vehemence and virulence, finding fault in his ways of dealing with mankind. So here it is, Brainerd is, is basically wrestling with God. Um, you know, why would not God save him because of his, his good works? And, and why does God have the plan that he does for, for mankind? You know, so he's, he's really desperate straight. And, and he actually goes through and, and sort of articulates, you know, what his struggles were. First, number one, it was the strictness of the law. I, for I found it was impossible for me, after utmost, point, utmost pains, to answer its demands. He couldn't meet the law. He couldn't fulfill the law. Um, and then, then he had a, an issue with faith alone as a condition for salvation, that God would not come to lower terms and that he would not promise his salvation upon my sincere and hearty prayers and endeavors. So grace was the only way. So works, all the things I was doing. So he was angry about that uh, because God had a different way and there was only one way. Uh, and, and I couldn't find out what faith was. How do I believe in God? What was it to believe? I didn't know. And then last of all, he had an issue with the sovereignty of God. I could not bear that it should be at holy God's pleasure to save or damn me just as he would. Why is it God is the one in charge? Why is he the one making the decisions? So these are what he struggled with and grappled with as he tried to work his way into heaven. But then came the moment of conversion. I saw that I had had a been heaping upon my devotions before God, fasting and praying and such, pretending and indeed really thinking sometimes that I was aiming at the glory of God, whereas I never once truly intended it, but only in my own happiness. I saw that as I had never done anything for God, I had no claim on anything from him but perdition on account of my hypocrisy and mockery. I was spending some time in prayer and self-examination when the Lord, by his grace, so shined into my heart that I enjoyed full assurance of his favor, Passages of God's word open to my soul with divine clearness, power, and sweetness, with clear and certain evidence of its being the word of God. And then I was walking in a dark, thick grove. Unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. And at this time, the way of salvation opened to me with such infinite wisdom, suitableness, and excellency that I wondered I should ever think of any other way of salvation. I wondered that all the world did not see and comply with this way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. So this is the conversion of David Brainerd and, and the, the realization that none of his works meant anything. It was only by faith in Christ. And just, it was a, a tremendous freedom. You know, it's just when you're on this burden, you're trying to work your way, trying to achieve a goal you'll never achieve. And then it's just miraculously open to you. Um, it was a tremendous burden lifted from him. You know, I have a kind of a similar experience. I was uh, sort of a good Pharisee myself. You know, I grew up in the church um, and did everything I could uh, in the church and serving him. You know, we, um, uh, in lots of different activities. And I even was, uh, would go on these road shows and we'd, we'd do musicals about the gospel and things like that. And I, I played different roles in that and, and would go in churches and, you know, preaching Christ and, and the gospel. And then I joined this youth group in like my senior year. And uh, they uh, basically, one of the guys in the group who was leader of the group, he called me one day as I was, as I was on my way to college. And he said, you know, Brad, you, you really, um, you have to go for it, man. You, you, um, 
you're falling short. And, I, and I, my, my first reaction was like, falling short. You know, so, you know, all these things I do, and you say I'm falling short. And I was, my first reaction was angry. I was angry. And I'm sort of the way Brainerd was angry at God. I was angry at this guy for saying somehow I'd fallen short uh, despite all the things that we're doing. And, you know, and he said, you really have to go for it. You have to have a personal relationship with Christ. You know, and, and, and I realized at that time that despite all the things that I had been doing, I didn't really have a personal relationship with Christ. I read the Bible, but I didn't have a hunger and thirst for it. So, so that, that got me thinking. And then when I went to UCLA, uh, that's where I met my lovely wife, um, I joined a Christian fraternity there and, uh, and met a lot of guys who were, seemed like they had a personal relationship with Christ. And they said, hey, we go to this church John MacArthur's the pastor, and uh, you guys, you should come. And, uh, and, I, and, and they used to talk about John all the time. And I was like, you know, this must be some type of personality cult because these guys are always talking about him. I don't know what kind of Kool-Aid they serve over there, but I sort of resisted for a while. Um, and, uh, but eventually I came to Grace, and, uh, you know, initially I thought, how could anybody be that good? But when I got here, I, I saw that was wrong. I never heard the word opened before like it was here and end up study the word. And my life was transformed, you know, through grace, coming to grace. And then Susan and I were eventually married here and uh, baptized here and uh, involved in ministry and the, the rest is history. But, but I, I was a Pharisee, just like Brainerd. I can relate to his story. And there is this thing of you're trying to work your way to heaven. This, but then it's such a release when you feel like I don't have to anymore, that God is taking care of it. Um, and so I, 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 can, I can relate to this. So, so now, uh, and this happens just before he goes to college. Now he's on his way to Yale. He, just, he figured out he, he wasn't going to be a farmer. So he's going to Yale. And again, here we'd say, well, becoming a Christian, go to Yale. That's the last place I want to go. But then, um, but then it was, that's where guys went to be pastors. And you had to, be, you had to have a degree, a four-year degree from Yale to be a pastor and establish church. So that's where he wanted to go. Um, and he entered Yale in, in 1739 and he loved to study and he was good at it. He was at the top of his class. Um, but, and, and, and we'd know more about his time there, but unfortunately he felt like he was still, his life there was not exemplary. So he actually, before uh, Edwards got to him, he destroyed both of his, his two volumes of diary from his college days. So I know a lot of us would like to destroy our uh, record of college days, but uh, I'm sure his weren't as bad as ours. But, um, but then, you know, as we see, you know, uh, as these strikes keep coming against Brainerd, he contracted measles and had to leave school for several months. And eventually at Yale, he contracted tuberculosis. And I, I looked at it, there's some people that say that measles can actually lead uh, to tuberculosis, unclear, but whatever it was, uh, he got tuberculosis, and this would, again, shape his ministry going forward. Uh, and tuberculosis, just so you know, it's a, it's a lung disease. It gives you a feeling of sickness or weight loss, fever, night sweats, coughing, chest pain. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> so, yes, Brainerd had COVID, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's something like it, obviously, and it was very debilitating, as we know it can be. And this... This was a time where they didn't have a lot of medicines and things, so um, uh, uh, so it was nothing really you could do for it, but just um, um, just live with it, which is what he does. And, and of course, 
the working that he did probably exacerbated the condition. You know, they worked so hard. So this was the time of the Great Awakening, and um, uh, and um, you know there was a lot of eminent preachers coming. George Whiting came through, uh, spelling check there. But um, uh, and so the, there was a there was kind of a, and, and we see a lot of the kind of the great spiritual movements in history. There was a on the secular side the Age of Reason was coming up, and people were thinking rationality and science. That was the way, that was their God of salvation. And at the same time, you see sort of a cold church kind of getting complacent. Uh, and, and the combination of those two uh, ignited uh, a, a movement of the spirit. Um, and, uh, and so what we see is a lot of these great preachers like Whiting coming through Edwards and, and sort of waking, and this awakening was coming. And so these itinerant preachers, Whiting was an itinerant preacher, they would come and they would preach. And we'll talk about him a little bit later. Um, but, uh, and, and they would get these great gatherings of people all uh, coming to the Lord. And Edwards was a great observer. So he, um, he wrote a, a, a little piece called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And so he observed this awakening coming and so he he um, he wrote a whole uh, pamphlet on it that um, that uh, Whiting and others I'm sure got a hold of, and, and that was part of what uh, uh, drew them to the the colonies to kind of preach. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I say Whiting Whitfield is what I meant to say. Sorry. Um, and, and the two things that he observed, one was that they are brought immediately to quit their sinful practices. So he saw this that people were forsaking. And soon the, the churches were full and the taverns were empty. So that was a good sign. So if you want to look, look at metrics, you know, look how full the taverns are versus the churches, if it's a real uh, movement. Uh, and, the, and the other effect was that it put them honest, earnest application, the means of salvation. That means that people were putting the word of God into practice. And that's what he observed. And I think that's what drew people that, yes, this was an awakening. But there was still a lot of debate about whether this is really of God or not, which we'll, we'll get into. And here's George Whitfield. Uh, they called him the cross-eyed Calvinist. So uh, as you see here, you kind of see it a little bit there, but I saw some pictures where, whoa, I don't see how he could even see straight with the... Uh, but, but anyway, he was a great, powerful preacher that swept the colonies. At some point, people said uh, 80% of the people in the colonies had heard Whitfield preach. Um, and so it was, it was an amazing movement. And he would, there'd be crowds of up to 30,000 people. This is in those times. And you had to be a pretty good preacher to, to preach to 30,000 people with no microphone. So, uh, so he was able to belt it out. But again, there was this big debate about, uh, and, and they became known as the new lights. The, you know, there was the old light, the old church, and the new lights. What was the validity of the new light, and was that really a movement of the Spirit? Um, and as we talked about, there was a great emphasis on the glory and the majesty of God. There was a, there was a movement from Arminianism back to Calvinism. Uh, in terms of the teaching, uh, becoming more of a moral life, that all people can come to Christ, not just a, a certain select few. And people could talk directly to God. So getting the church, the church at that time had sort of an official designation of being connected to um, the state. And so this was kind of a moving away from that. Uh, and and I, some people say that this was sort of the foundation for some of the principles that were incorporated in the um, the Declaration of Independence and some of the the freedom movements of the Hard to say, you know, my um, 
my friend, uh, Dr. Grade Frazier, who teaches on this subject, said it's kind of questionable, but, but there are definitely some principles in the um, Great Awakening that you can find in kind of the, the later uh, separation freedom movements that happened in the colonies. Um, but along with this, in addition to kind of putting dispersion on the, on the old lights was, you know, there's physical reactions. A lot of people, there was fainting, trembling, crying out, kind of what you see in some of the, uh, the charismatic movements, um, a lot of physical, emotional reactions. So then that was another reason why people sort of questioned it. And so what ended up happening was there a division, um, there came a division between the old lights, which is the existing church. They were saying this is really a false movement. Then there was the, the new light separatists, which said, hey, we just, those guys aren't Christians. We need to get out of here. And then there's the new light moderates, which the movement was basically good, but we can't discard the, the old and say everybody's not a Christian. And that's where uh, Whitfield and, um, and uh, Edwards sort of fell in that last category. And here's... Uh, uh, Edward's discussion about what was going on at Yale. So the, this awakening was at the beginning of that extraordinary religious commotion through the land, which is fresh in everyone's memory. It was for a time very great in general at New Haven, where Yale is located, and the college had no small share in it. The society was greatly reformed. The students in general became serious, many of them so remarkably so, and much engaged in the concerns of their eternal salvation. So the, the, the awakening swept through Yale. And then they had a series of preachers actually come to Yale. Gil Tennant, a powerful preacher, nicknamed by Whitfield as a son of thunder. Um, and after that, you know, Brainerd and two other students started meeting with other students on campus uh, for conversion and prayer. And then they had uh, Ebenezer Pemberton, who gave an address about missionary work to the Indians in April 1740. These are all the influences that are impacting Brainerd when he's at the school. And the next day on his 23rd birthday, Brainerd uh, vowed to be holy, the Lord's forever dedicated to his service. Uh, and then he, he, um, he was ill, as we talked about earlier, and then he, he, he missed uh, Whitefield's, Whitefield's sermon, but he noticed that there was a new spiritual zeal on campus, and they formed kind of a group, uh, you'd say, the, uh, of new lights on campus, and they met, and, um, and many of the students were becoming critical of the old faculty, the old, what they call the old lights. And so, um, so as a response to that, Yale summoned back its great um, alumni, Jonathan Edwards, and one of their goals was bringing Edwards back is to sort of suppress this movement and to kind of quell the fervor and the, the reactions to uh, the faculty. And so Edwards preached uh, uh, one of his um, uh, very important sermons, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. He preached that sermon first at Yale, in Brenner's presence, and then later turned it into a book. And so the whole point of his, his uh, sermon was, how do we tell that a movement really is of the Spirit of God? How do you tell that? Um, and so he, he, he took a very interesting approach. He said, he, he divided into negative marks. These are things that we see that are not necessarily an indication that it's not the Spirit of God. And then there's the positive marks. These are re really indicated is from God. So the, he, he kind of broke it down, as he always does. He set up a framework for determining whether a movement was of the Spirit of God or not. So it's a very interesting um, uh, work, and I, I recommend reading that in and of itself. And I'm not going to get to all of these, but all of the things that you saw, uh, the unusual circumstances, its physical effects, intense infections for God, um, use of the imagination, 
influential examples. Just because big names were coming to it doesn't mean it's not from God. Unwise contact, you know, there's always going to be overzealousness with people in these theological error even. Uh, you know, as long as we're humans, we're going to make mistakes, is his point. Um, and, and of course, there's always going to be people professing to be part of it that aren't really. Uh, and just the, the fact that there was passionate preaching uh, that maybe overstepped the bounds and kind of frightening people into it. All of these are really not a reason to say this wasn't from God. And then what he said, really the positive mark, these are the things you need to look at if you want to assess that a spirit, a movement of the spirit is from God. First of all, is Jesus honored? If he seems to create them in the higher and more honorable thoughts of him than they used to have and to incline their affections for him, then it is a sure sign that it is a true and right spirit. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And then second is Satan's kingdom is opposed. Indeed, the spirit of God, not Satan, shows a man the ugliness of worldly pleasures, his need for Christ and the beauty of treasures in heaven. And God's word is highly regarded. Therefore, he, Satan, is engaged against the Bible and hates every word of it. And he may, not, and he may be sure that he will never attempt to raise people's regard of it or affection to it. Uh, and, and then two more, God's truth is revealed. If I am brought to a display of the truth and have made sensible the things as they really are, my duty is immediately to thank God for it. So that not only is the truth, people recognize the word of God as truth, but the truth is revealed and lived out in their lives. And you see that. And then the last thing, God and others are loved. The spirit is at work among a, a people and operates as a spirit of love to God and man. It's a sure sign that it is the spirit of God. So it's, it's a very concise way of, and I think we could use this even today to test whether a spirit or whether a movement is from God. And so, so he preached this, and then his application was, his conclusion, much to the chagrin of the Yale regents, that the revivals are a work of God. The rules of the word of God and the facts of this observation, of this movement, is undoubtedly in the general, in the general, he says, he qualifies it, mostly from the spirit of God. So we must not hinder but promote the work. Uh, those who resist will fail of any share of so great a blessing and will miss the most precious opportunity of attaining divine light, grace, and comfort, heavenly and eternal benefits that God ever gave in New England. So if, if you don't promote it, you're going to miss it, and that would be a great tragedy. But the promoters of the revival must be approached, and here's where he gives a kind of a middle-of-the-road answer to say, but give diligent heed to themselves to avoid all errors of misconduct. Uh, and then, and he also said the miraculous gifts are passing away, so we don't see those now, which some people were claiming we're coming back with this movement. And then consider how far the grounds of Holy Scripture will truly justify their passing censures upon professing Christians. So his point was you need to go back to the, the Scripture before you condemn something. And there's a process for condemning people in the Bible. Go back to that. Don't just uh, say these people are not Christians out of hand. So I thought it was a very reasonable, but... Uh, the regents, they didn't really feel like they'd achieved kind of the result that they were looked for. And the very next day, they passed a resolution. If any student of this college shall directly or indirectly say that of the rector, either the trustees or the tutors are hypocrites, carnal or unconverted men, he shall for the first offense make a public confession in the hall and for the second offense be expelled. So, so following on that, uh, you know, Brainerd was meeting with his new light group, his, his, his small group, and uh, they were meeting just after they had these large prayer sessions. And so one of the one of the tutors had prayed in that session, and Brainerd felt like that's that's a pretty apathetic, pretty pathetic prayer that he just prayed. And so he said, 
the, the tutor, Chauncey, Chauncey Wilson, he's dead, so I can say his name. But the, um, he has no more grace than a chair, meaning he might not even be saved. Um, and then he, and the second thing that they accused him of, he said he wondered why the rector did not drop down dead for finding the students for their evangelical zeal. So, of course, there was a freshman in the room who happened to overheard their discussions, turned them into the... The, to the, the leadership, and then they had to, all his friends had to give an account. And yes, he did have to admit he said those things, but he refused to apologize publicly because he said these were made in private. Why should he make a public apology? But as a result of his refusal to make amends, he, um, he was expelled from Yale, even though he was at the top of the class. And apparently his dream for the pastorate and ministry was dead. So before we get on to the mission of the Indians, I saw Bill here. Is Bill? Oh, did he? Of course he did, yes. So, uh, yeah, maybe you can find him. I was going to... That's all right, we'll keep going. My wife here has supplied me with a sample supply of water. Okay, we'll keep going. But Bill is going to do his thing, but... So Brainer began to fast and pray. Remember, he was a Christian. Uh, he had unfortunate circumstances, but it began in his series of strikes. This was another strike against him you know, in terms of un, you know, unforeseen bad circumstances that, that came into his life. Um, and he, uh, he became, basically, he became an itinerant preacher and was, you know, there's a lot of new light churches that started that were welcoming him because obviously some of the old light churches would look askance at a guy who, was kicked out of Yale for criticizing uh, the leadership there. Um, and then he met, uh, 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 met a pastor, Don, Thomas Dickerson, who was, um, he was the, um, he was a commissioner in the society in, in Scotland for the propagating of Christian knowledge, which this is really a missionary organization. And he proposed that Brainerd become a missionary. Um, and, and at that point, Brainerd basically said, you know, he, he embraced that, and, and even if he had had to suffer banishment to serve the heathen, he was going to heed his calling. And he also said, I'm going to wear out my life in his service, which he did. And so Brainerd, even though it's interesting to me that, you know, even though the Puritans landed, the, the, the pilgrims landed in 1620, and I actually have relatives who landed on the boat um, in, on the Mayflower, uh, they landed 1620, uh, even 120 years later, there still wasn't a lot going on with the Indians. The, the, and a lot of people had come from Europe. They had their churches and things, but there wasn't a lot of ministry going on. I think a lot of people, uh, and we'll see that there was a, a big division. But there had been some things. John Elliott uh, was a precursor. You know, he had um, uh, he had actually um, uh, translated the Bible into Algonquin, which is the Mohican language, and it was the first Bible printed in America. It wasn't an English Bible. It was an Algonquin Bible. Uh, and the Moravian missionaries had, had sent a lot of missionaries and started reaching out. But Brainerd had an issue in that they had sort of an easy beliefism uh, uh, kind of approach. So he wasn't a big fan of theirs. Um, and, you know, basically the, the colonials, they basically called them that. They saw the Indians as heathens. You know, they were nomads. They traveled around. They worshipped the gods of the earth. Uh, they had pagan rituals. And so... And, and they were they were pagan, but but no more pagan than 
many of the people in the colonies. And, and that's, what the, that's, what the colonial, that's what the Indians saw. They said, well, these guys are no good example of if you think uh, I'm going to come to Christianity because of these guys, you've got to be kidding. Um, and, uh, and they also felt pressure because, um, you know, obviously, as we know, that the Indians were constantly getting moved west, getting moved out. Uh, they, they, they really felt looked down upon by the other culture. And, and they felt Christian was hip, hypocritical because they saw the lives that these people lived. So there wasn't a great outpouring of missionaries to the Indians. And, and a lot of Indians did not become part of Christian churches at that time. Uh, and even Brainerd's own observations is Bill. Ba- oh, did you find Bill? Yeah, two minutes. What? Two minutes. Okay, all right. Um, you know, Bra- here's Brainerd's own observations. They are much attached to idolatry, frequently making feasts, which they eat in honor to some unknown beings who they suppose speak to them in dreams, promising them success in hunting and other affairs in case they will sacrifice to them. They often offer their sacrifices to the spirits of the dead, who they suppose stand in need of favors from the living and yet are in such a state that they can well reward all the offices of kindness that are shown them. And they impute all their calamities to the neglect of these sacrifices. So that was basically, and I think a lot of us are familiar with that. There's Bill. Um, so let's see. Um, Bill, are you ready to go? Okay. So uh, I'll pause here. Uh, we wanted to give Bill a chance to do. We'll, we'll come back to this. Let's see here. There we go. So Bill is going to um, um, talk just a little bit about hymns of those days and and worship, and then we'll come back to Brainerd's life. Oh yeah, there's a clicker. So this is uh, this goes this advances. Sweet. Yeah. Good morning, Brad. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, hymnology. And our goal here is to just talk a little bit about what congregational music would have been like in the day of Brainerd and Edwards. And a little bit of, of, uh, a little bit of music history here. The hymns we enjoy today have a family firmly planted back in the Reformation because Martin Luther brought corporate worship back into the hands of the laity. Um, he acknowledged the priesthood of all believers and that corporate worship belonged to them and not the Roman Catholic priesthood. Um, as you well know, Luther wrote hymns, the best known of which are uh, is uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And after Luther, John Calvin followed suit in Geneva with a similar emphasis on congregational music. However, he restricted this to unaccompanied voices and then exclusively to psalm-based texts. To this day, in fact, some strains of Protestantism still hold to the practice of exclusive psalmody, prohibiting the use of instruments and arguing against the freer sorts of music and texts and accompaniments that you routinely hear here at Grace Community Church. Thankfully, Luther and Calvin faced the same challenges all hymn writers face. It's difficult to take a biblical text in any language and to make it fit neatly with an ordered melody. And, of course, you want to be able to understand the words. So singing in Greek or Hebrew or Latin is not the best thing for most people. 
And if you translate, then you have the challenge of, again, making um, a, a literal translation of a text does not neatly fit to music. So what happens, um, I, I, what I'd like to do is to explain a little further about the sorts of hymns employed in corporate worship in Edwards and Brainer's day. But uh, before I do that, I need to explain that what we're used to today as far as melodies and texts being composed together, that was unheard of then. So texts were written by theologians, and musicians came along and found something to sing them to. Um, in fact, uh, these days our hymnody is rather upside down in another way, and that is that most of our hymns are f a, a sort of a free uh, nature, not based on one specific passage of Sir. And rather, a, a great hymn today might have uh, some biblical topic or story or testimony or doctrine that is explored in various facets through the different stanzas of, of the hymn. But much of Protestantism back in that day didn't sing um, free hymns until Isaac Watts and the Wesley brothers came and popularized them. Instead, what they were doing there and actually all through much of Europe um, were singing metrical psalms. So what is a metrical psalm? Since literal translation makes for poor English poetry, a metrical psalm is a poetic paraphrase of a psalm or a psalm passage and it's put into verse with a rhyme scheme, multiple brief stanzas, and employing a recurring pattern of the numbers of syllables in each of the lines. The latter is what makes it metrical. For example, we sang, O God, our help in ages past, in the main worship service this morning. It has four line stanzas in a pattern of eight syllables, six syllables, eight syllables, and six syllables. You could sing that text to any tune with a meter of 8686, such as that of Jesus, the very thought of thee, or oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. So you could go, oh, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, right? Okay, that's just what they did. They take a given metrical psalm and simply find a tune with a matching meter and go for it. Hymnals back then didn't typically print words with music, but just the texts alone, which left the local musicians to work out what to sing them to. 8686 was such a profusely used pattern that it became known as common meter, which you'll see why shortly. One of the most significant influences on hymnody in the early American colonies was known as the Basalm Book. This was actually the very first book to be published there in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1640. It endeavored to carefully paraphrase each verse of many of the Psalms into singable stanzas. Among the various sources of hymns from which Brainerd and Edwards would have sung, the Bay Psalm book serves as the foundation. I'd like to provide you an example from the very first text. Of course, is a paraphrase of Psalm 1. As you can see, there's one poetic stanza of four lines for each verse of the biblical text. 
And Psalm 1 in the LSB reads as follows, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, the Bay Psalm book paraphrase, being in common meter, you can easily sing this. So do this to Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Go for it. Oh, blessed man that in the advice of wicked doth not walk, nor stand in sinner's way or sit in chair of scornful folk. But in the law of Jehovah is his longing delight, and in his law doth meditate by day and eke by night. So eke is an archaic word that means also. All right. Now, did you feel how some of those emphasized syllables strained against the melody? All right, right. And the best hymns, well, they don't do that. I should mention the concept of lining. Remember, in most of these gatherings, there were no instruments, so there was no organ to play an introduction or to be underneath the voices. There were no tunes in the hymnals, only words. And of course, there were no Spotify playlists. So there was only the song leader to sing a line of the hymn, and the congregation would repeat it back, back and forth, back and forth, line by line. That's the unfortunate concept of lining, but that's how they had to get it done. So let's jump over to the Bay Psalm book setting of Psalm 118. And in fact, I'd like to just go to the middle of that, which in the LSB reads, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And now we can sing it. The stone which builders did refuse had cornerstone now lies. This is the doing of the Lord, it's wondrous in our eyes. This is the very day the which Jehovah he hath made. We will exceedingly rejoice, and in it will be glad. Now, in spite of the fact that it's wonderful to be able to sing scripture in that way, and the ease with which you can just pick it up and go, you've just experienced some of the major shortcomings of this mode of congregational singing. There were far too few tunes. Uh, which a very typical problem in those days. And so they would reuse them and reuse the same things over and over again. Most significantly, Christ is scarcely visible in these texts. And to make matters worse, uh, speaking of tunes, the ones that they had were rather inferior to the ones that we're used to singing to today by, by and large. So unfortunately, as clever as some of the poetry is, and in spite of the profound impact of this collection, it ended up having what today we would call a limited shelf life. No doubt that owes to the rigidity of the paraphrases and the 
there's a lack of poetic beauty. And so virtually nothing of the Bay Psalm book remains in English hymnals today, and little from the 17th century tune books endures as well. But still, it was setting out in a great direction. Um, compare that with what we did in the main worship service this morning. Anybody in the 9 o'clock main service, or did you all play hooky? All right, good. So we started with the best known of the early metrical psalms, the old 100th, which is to the doxology tune. Those were published uh, under John Calvin's leadership in 1551, and the English version of that uh, started out very shortly after that. Um, the instrumental piece, the text of that was uh, based on a paraphrase from uh, 1650. The choir anthem was a new psalm. That was written just under a decade ago by R.C. Sproul. And then finally, the hymn I just mentioned, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, was by Isaac Watts and was published in the early 18th century and was very likely known to Brainerd and Edwards. Not only that, but the tune we use, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, that may have been the one that they used, a very rare exception. Um, the music was published in 1708 through the auspices of Irish Anglican poets Nahum Tate and Nicholas Brady, who themselves published a very significant um, compendium of metrical psalms in 1696, which, if that had made it over to the colonies, may have also been an influence on Brainerd and Edwards' Sunday services. But I digress. Let's talk about Isaac Watts, who revolutionized hymn singing. He was born in 1674 in Southampton, England, and he recognized the unevenness of the quality and the theology of the metrical psalms of the day. And so being a great scholar, theologian, and poet, he was the first to successfully make a case for not exclusively singing psalms. Furthermore, he recognized the importance of Christ in the Psalms, prophetically and in New Testament fulfillment. So in 1719, um, and not by any means his first collection of hymns, he published a collection entitled The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. And by the way, the Christmas carol, which is really shouldn't be a Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, is one of the texts from that collection. Of his 600 or so hymns, a few dozen are still often sung today, including what we did this morning and what I just mentioned. And add to that, join all the glorious names and when I survey the wondrous cross. The impact of Watts all over the English-speaking world led to numerous reprints and borrowings, including by John and Charles Wesley, beginning in the 1730s. For example... Here is a version of Watts's Join All the Glorious Names, again, published in 1737. So while Watts first published it in 1709, this kind of thing might have been how uh, people in the English colonies might have seen it or heard it. What's interesting is that the, the text of this is different than the meter that we have in our hymnal now, and I haven't figured out who changed it, which was the precedent. Um, but you see here, join all the names of love and power. You can see that first stanza, that ever men or angels bore, all are too mean to speak thy worth, Savior, or set thy glories forth. Well, we're used to singing it. 
join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew um, that angels ever bore are all too poor to speak his worth, too poor to set my Savior forth. So um, as I bring my portion to a close, I need to make mention again of of, the... the Wesley brothers, very likely another profound influence on Edwards and Brainerd's hymn singing. And um, John's hymns don't survive in modern hymn usage, but Charles, who was born in 1707 and wrote between six and 7,000 hymns, joins Isaac Watts in having created some of the most important early non-psalm-based texts. Among the most beloved are Christ the Lord is risen today, hark the herald angels sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, not to the tune we know, and and can it be. Although their publications were printed in England, their great influence at home as well as abroad in the American colonies is, is indisputable. Earlier, I showed you Wesley's 1737 version of Join All the Glorious Names, a subsequent reprint of that collection added as a back section, a 1742 tune book. Here are two pages from it. And interestingly enough, only the melody is supplied, but it's significant to note that Charles Wesley's 1738 and can it be is here. And it was just four years old. And the tune to which we know it wasn't written for another 87 years in 1825. So, well, how well does this one work? Um, let me see if I can try to, this is, I'll, I'll sing it for you. Bear with me. Okay. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So what do you think? Should we get rid of ours? Thank you. So what do you think? Is it a keeper or shall we keep the one we know? Well, honestly, only the final phrase is sensible. And I think on the merit of that music alone, this hymn wouldn't have had a chance. Thankfully, hymnals continued to contain only lyrics. This one garnered its well-deserved attention for the quality of the poem. And Thomas Campbell came along in 1825 and wrote the beloved tune by which we know it today. And So I hope this sidebar discussion has helped you get a taste of what early American hymnody was like and the legacy of these hymns being all over the map. Well, some texts and tunes are justly forgotten. Some endure to this day, thankfully. And what a joy it is to still use the greatest of them among our expressions of praise. They help connect us with believers um, from centuries ago as we, like they did, walk in the faith once delivered in the saints. I want to leave Brad a couple of minutes left here at the end, but I would really love to have you stand. Mark, did we get this to go? No. 
Okay. Um, so I'd love to sing a verse of Anne Can It Be? And uh, that's going to be kind of like really old English. Um, Mark, can you sing me an F? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Would you all stand and let's sing together? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Marvelous testimony, and thank you for not needing me to line that out for you. You may, you may be seated. Really good. Thank you, Bill. Yay. I mean, can't you picture Bill chanting in a monastery somewhere with, a, with the old hymns and the psalms? And I think he'd be great at it. And so uh, I am actually very thankful for Bill, too, uh, um, just his ministry here at the church. And his transition from cling to him was one of the smoothest transitions I've ever seen in the history of the world. I mean, just so, so patient and then just stepped right in and just taking it to a new level. Really appreciate your ministry. And speaking of David Brainerd, Bill has gone through his own physical trials lately, and we're just so glad to have him here. Thank you, Bill. So, yeah. So we only have about an hour more to go here, so... Uh, <laughs> but the good news is it's all... Um, this is all documented, uh, and I can put this out on the... Um, uh, I can put this out on the website so people can take a look at it. What I did want to go through... So, um, so Brainerd was commissioned... Um, you know, I, I did. I, I got a great kick out of his commissioning, so I have to read this one. But it's um, so he went to, to invited to New York to be commissioned, and he was examined by some gentlemen of my Christian experience and of my acquaintance with divinity and some other studies in order to uh, my improvement in that or important affair of gospelizing the heathen, and was made sensible of my great ignorance and unfitness for public service. I thought that was an interesting <laughs> comment. That after all that, he just. Oh, yeah, and, and anybody who's been through ordination, you probably have got that same. Uh, and then in this depressed occasion, I was forced to go and preach to a considerable assembly uh, before some grave and learned minister. So that was part of you, your, you preach. And my soul was grieved for the congregation that they should sit there to hear such a dead dog as I preach. And I spent the, much of the evening alone. But this, this is a good, you see his heart. And again, anybody who was at that, I'm sure was saying, oh, that was a great, and they commissioned him to go. Uh, but, you know, just, just that self-introspection uh, that came along. But I, I got a kick out of that. Um, I'm not going to go through, you know, you can kind of read, but basically his first two stationing, um, you know, I think it was a good example of he went to disciple uh, with a guy uh, that, uh, that helped him um, 
kind of learn the language and learn the culture. So that was good. That's the way we do it in missions here is to, to, to work with people. Uh, but really didn't see any significant uh, salvations or work there. And then he went from Conomique uh, over to the Forks of Delaware in Pennsylvania. And um, keep in mind, Pennsylvania, you know, we think of the Wild Wild West as somewhere in uh, Utah or Arizona. In those days, Wild Wild West was Pennsylvania. Uh, and that was a very harsh world. Uh, and, and he has a lot, he talks a lot about his travails and, and living there. But he actually went to live among the people, which is, I think, another missionary principle that we uh, try to adhere to is to live with the people, be part of the people. A lot of times you see people kind of going in and out. It's really hard to get a sense of the culture and have the people really think that you're with them if you're just kind of coming in, going out. And that's why we really emphasize that with our missions as well. Um, so, and really the only only fruit that he saw there, what he called fruit, was the salvation of his translator, Tatami and his wife, and they became Christians in the Delaware, but no other converts per se, even though he had a lot of ministry there. Um, and then he heard about a group of Indians in Crosswick Sun, which we saw in, the, in New Jersey. And he went there, he preached, he found a young native woman there uh, who became the first convert in that area. So the, and it was, it was amazing, the work there. And I'll hear it, he'll, he'll describe it to you. Um, but the, the thing that she said that was different about him than others is that she loved David Rader because he loved his heavenly father so much. That was what really came through to her. And that example of Brainerd really was an example to her. And that's what caused her to come to Christ despite all the other words that she had heard from other people. And then that kind of dovetailed. And people just kept coming and kept coming. And all of a sudden they had about 130 believers. And when you think about that barren land, which there might have not been 130 Indian believers in the whole country. And then, and then here we are in one group, all of these people coming to know the Lord. Uh, it was an amazing work. And I think it was important to just sort of uh, maybe touch on a little bit that uh, some of Brainerd's commentary and why that was um, remarkable. Because uh, first of all, you know, he had been so discouraged. So it's remarkable that God began this work among the Indians at a time when I had the least hope, and to my apprehension, the least rational prospect of seeing a work of grace, grace propagated among them. And he talks about his body being much wasted. And his mind was exceedingly depressed. I had so little reason to hope uh, I was, and then he was wanted to quit. He said, I was ready to look upon myself as a burden to the mission society that sent me. And, and this is after two years, you know, think about that, you know, two years, he's already saying, I, I better, I'm wasting people's money is what I'm saying. I, why am I, what am I doing here? Cause I see no fruit. Um, and, and it wasn't because he was disappointed or discouraged or, uh, about the work. It's just that, uh, he didn't feel like it was right to spend money, uh, on when, his only job was to civilize the Indians, not to save them. And that's all he was seeing. Um, and he, he was wondering if God was just withholding his grace from his work and whether he was, it was related, whether that was his calling. Uh, but, but the second thing he said was remarkable is that God called these Indians together and how he seized their minds immediately. And people kept coming um, uh, and from all, he didn't even know where he wasn't calling, but they just kept coming and coming and being saved immediately. And, and the people of the village were all critical. So thirdly, he's saying, God preserved these poor Indians from being prejudiced against me, despite everything that was heard. Some people were saying that he was rounding up all the Indians to, to take them into slavery. So he's getting these big groups of people together. They were going to come and take them off. That was what people were saying about him and his ministry. 
but the Indians kept coming anyway. And what they said was, we say they have so little concern for their soul, how could they be concerned about our soul, about the people who are saying those things? Um, and, and, uh, and then the other thing he's, uh, he was praising God for as a, as a, as a great translator, you know, that he didn't have the skill of the communication, but he had a translator. And we've seen this when we go overseas, a translator who loved the Lord, who was able to communicate. Well, we've, well I, there's guys I work with in Ukraine who I think they were preaching a better message than I was. You know, they were taking mine and they were amplifying it in the culture and they understood the concept so they could really explain it. That's the benefit of great translator. And it also works the opposite. I don't know if you heard John tell the story, but a guy, one of the guys I knew from Ukraine who was also a, a great translator, uh, there was a guy in the church there that had come from some other church and was preaching on the verge of heresy. Was, we're, we're all going, oh, man, what are they? because the Ukrainian church used to let these guys stand up. But the, Sergei, who was a translator, we said, well, what, what's up with this guy? And he said, don't worry, they didn't hear a word of it. And so <laughs> so that's, a, that's the benefit of having a great translator. Um, uh, and, and then he, the fifth one, he said, uh, you know, it was great that he carried on this work and he didn't see all the prejudices of the, the you know, the, the fear that people were trying to preach the Indians to get him. He didn't see that. People were coming of their own, just hearing the word of God and being convicted through that, not of kind of any scare tactics. Um, and the other thing was that many of these people had gained more doctrinal knowledge and divine truth since I first visited them in June than could have been installed in their minds in the most diligent use of proper instructive means for whole years together. So he's saying these people were coming to know the word in rapid fashion. And really, if you harken back to the words, the, the marks of the spirit, the movement of the spirit that Edwards had outlined, this movement was all aligned with that. You could see that. And so Brainerd obviously had been there. He could see that this really was a miraculous, uh, amazing work of the Spirit. And so they moved to a village in Cranberry. We'll go. Um, and then um, eventually he takes leave at great pains. Uh, he leaves from them. And, uh, you know, and he starts to kind of get his orders in fair. And, and you can see, I think if you've ever had to, if you had to pick one, I, I recommend that you read all of it. And it's all free on the internet, all of Brainerd's works. Uh, you, so you can pick it up. Uh, but read about his, his conversion and then read about his end days. And you, you think about these are the two major transactions in his life. One coming from, from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ and then another coming into his presence. These are the two. And you can see the heart of Brainerd uh, in these two transactions. Um, he spoke, you know, when in his last days, he spoke about, you know, he had much concern for the true, the nature of true religion and heart and practice. And he saw a lot of counterfeits in the church. And he went to Boston to kind of preach against that, that he, was, he really had a heart for the church, that they would come back and that this movement would take hold and really move the hearts of the people. And he had a great abhorrence for, for doctrine. So you see the teaching and the practicality coming in. He had an abhorrence for doctrine that was counter to the word of God, like antinomianism, which is the easy beliefism, the, uh, we don't have to uh, um, abide by the law or holiness of life. Those were unnecessary. Um, and, and then he, he also abhorred the, the practice of the separatists, dividing the church, calling some Christians not and some Christians other. And he was looking for unity of the church around the, the, um, around the word of God. And, 
Uh, and, and even in his, even as he's sick, he never seemed to be easy. He was, if he was not doing something for God. And then he was also trying to set up the missions work, trying to send more missionaries to his work to take care of his church. He oftentimes would cry over the church, the, his church, the Indian church, his cry over them and his concern for them, setting up missionaries, funding a school. He wrote to people to fund a Christian school. And he was very effective in, in getting um, ministry, getting funds for the school and getting persons sent. Um, and then as, as his dying days came, uh, you know, he, he said, oh, the glorious time is now coming. I've longed to serve God perfectly, meaning in heaven. Now God will gratify those desires. So his, his desires were coming true. But I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to honor God. Uh, and I, I, I pray for the God's glorious advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. Um, and then, you know, he, he continued to say it was impossible to any dis- to conceive the distress he felt in his breast. Um, he was so, his body was on such duress, but he was concerned that he might dishonor God by his impatience to go to heaven uh, under his extreme agony. Um, so, uh, so Brainer was promoted to heaven. Um, interestingly, Brainer, uh, Edward's daughter, Jerusa, who, who cared for him, 17-year-old, and they developed a, affection uh, some say maybe there was a romantic, but never no evidence of that, but a strong affection just because of the man he was. And she died a few months later of the same uh, disease and uh, was buried right next to him. Um, and on, only on his gravestone, it says, faithful and laborious missionary to the Stockbridge, Delaware, and Susquehanna tribes of the Indians. Very simple. I'm, I'm sure that's probably more than Brainerd would have wanted to have said. Uh, and it's interesting because he was such a understated guy, um, Edwards delivered the eulogy at his funeral. Uh, delivered the eulogy at his funeral. And we're There's a lot of words to be learned. Um, and and um, before I get there, so and you could see the impact, you know, as iron sharpened. I, I think that Brainerd and Edwards were probably much the same Peter and Paul. You know, Peter, the pastor of the church, the leader of the church, as Edwards was, and Paul, the great missionary. And um, uh, you could see the same, I think, relationship between Edwards and Brainerd. Um, and, you know, I think that God does res- rise, raise up special leaders during special times. This great awakening was that, as we talked about, that convergence of kind of spiritual spiritual uh, uh, immorality uh, and vacuous, vacuousness and the coldness of the church and raising up leaders to lead kind of a, a, a an awakening, a revival. Much the same way I think a lot of you see that today. You know, you see where the world's going. You see where the church is going. We need leaders like John and others to kind of step up and kind of lead the church back to Christ and to be that kind of that salt and light in the world. That's why you see, I, I see... As elders, we see a miraculous movement of funds and resources and people coming to the church and supporting it, starting a Christian school, uh, starting other works. It's just, it's been an amazing time, quite frankly. And when you're thinking you're at your, your lowest period of time, quite frankly, we see this, this working. And so I think both Brainerd and um, Edwards, they, they were good for each other. Um, and of Brainerd, he, he, of course, his eulogy, it was a sermon from the Bible. Uh, it wasn't about Brainerd at all. It was about, you know, what we have to look forward to in heaven. And then he did, and oh, by the way, you know, of Brainerd, he said, 
he and his whole course acted as one who had indeed sold all for Christ, had entirely devoted himself to God and made his glory the highest end and was fully determined to spend his whole time and strength in his service. And Willie Carey, father of modern missionaries, but as we said, um, Brainerd was, was, would be the grandfather then. And they all gave testimony to him. And I think things that, you know, that we should be thinking about is, you know, what are we relying for, on for our salvation? You know, the, uh, are we just coming to church and thinking that's going to be enough? You know, what are the weaknesses and failures that we see uh, that sort of hold us back as excuses to ministry when really those are a channel of God's blessing and really equipping you uh, to experience that? Um, and then think about how God will use those to his, his, demonstrate his power through you. And, and how do you commune with God? Brainerd communed on a daily basis, sometimes six times a day, bringing his concerns and cares. Not that he was perfect. He wasn't. All the more so to come to God. Um, and, then, um, and then what's our attitude towards the outcasts of the world? The people are heathen of today. Are there people that we just don't want to affiliate with? Uh, you know, we just kind of keep to our holy huddle. You know, think of Brainerd and, and what he was willing to do, who he was willing to reach, and then crying over those people, the people that were outcasts in society. And do we have that same sense of urgency? Look at what Brainerd was able to get done in a period of three years. Um, you know, do we have that same sense of urgency? Sometimes I think, you know, we're, we're just sitting here waiting for the opportunity, and Brainerd, it was the opposite. You know, he, he went after he served the Lord with all his might, despite his conditions. Um, so I'll leave this final with uh, a poem that Brainerd wrote. Uh, Farewell, vain world, my soul can bid adieu. My Savior's taught me to abandon you. Your charms may greatly gratify a sensual mind, not please a soul wholly for God's design. Forbear to entice, cease then my soul to call. Tis fixed through grace, my God shall be all, my all. While he thus lets me heavenly glories view, your beauties fade and my heart's no room for you. Lord, I'm a stranger here alone. Earth no true comforts can afford, yet absent from my dearest one. My soul delights to cry, my Lord, Jesus, my Lord, my only love. Possess my soul, nor thence depart. Grant me kind visits, heavenly dove. My God shall then have all my heart. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful um, for the great example that Brainerd was to us. Uh, Hopefully that we pray that we... um, could follow in that example, follow in his footsteps, that we could have a greater zeal for your kingdom, for your word, for your people, for those who are not your people, Lord, to share the gospel with them. Um, we thank you for all the great examples you have in our current life, for the, the pastors and the ministers among us, for our missionaries. Lord, help us to support them uh, with the same zeal that, that others supported Brainerd. And um, Lord, again, we're just thankful for the example and pray that would just just have an impact uh, on our lives and, and have an impact for your kingdom. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.